0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. We love telling you quirky stories from our history here on this show. And this one comes to you from Bill Breik, a friend from New Hampshire. It's a story of the best, worst counterfeiter in American history.
1: Emmerich Juttner, also known as Edward Mueller, who lived near Broadway and West 96th Street in Manhattan, eluded the counterfeiting laws from 1938 to 1948, longer than any other maker of the queer in American history. The first 63 years of Juttner's life were upright and respectable. Short. Blue-eyed, white-haired, mustachioed, and blessed with a winning, if toothless, grin, Juttner had learned the rudiments of photo engraving in his native Austria. After emigrating to America at 13, he worked as a building superintendent while tinkering with numerous unsuccessful inventions. With his children grown, the newly widowed Juttner retired in 1937 to the Upper West Side where he lived with his mongrel terrier. He worked as a junk man, picking up discarded appliances and old tires from vacant lots with a pushcart. But he wasn't making enough to live on, and soon found himself nearing destitution. So, using his ancient engraving skills, he photographed a dollar bill and recorded the images on sensitized zinc plates, which he then etched in an acid bath. With a little retouching and a small hand press, he was ready to make more money by, well, making more money. The US Secret Service, which has chased counterfeiters since 1865, protecting presidents became part of their mission only in 1901, first noticed Jutner's activity when a phony $1 silver certificate turned up at a cigar store on Broadway near 102nd Street. Even as the agency opened a new case file numbered 880, agents felt everything about the bill was unusual. No one in recent times had considered singles worth the trouble to counterfeit. More importantly, the bill was obviously laughably bad. While US currency was printed on 75% cotton and 25% linen stock with red and blue fibers of various lengths embedded in the paper, Jutner had used cheap bomb paper from some corner store. The numbers were fuzzy. Many of the letters were misshaped or illegible. Washington's portrait was, as the Secret Service itself reported, poorly executed. Washington's right shoulder blends with the oval background. The left eye is represented by a black spot. The right eye is almond-shaped. But the bogus singles kept turning up. Those that could be traced have been passed to the subway and elevated lines, and newspaper vendors, bartenders, and other small businesses that handled hundreds, if not thousands, of one dollar bills daily. Jutner carefully passed his fakes only at busy times, such as rush hour on the subway. A five-cent fare paid with a phony dollar yielded a 95-cent profit. And as the Secret Service later learned, Jutner never spent a fake in the same store twice, and passed only one or two bills a day. By December 1939, file 880 contained some 600 counterfeits. The bills grew worse with time. While touching up the plates, Jutner misspelled the president's name as W-A-H-S-I-N-G-T-O-N, Washington. Nonetheless, he kept passing bogus singles throughout World War II despite successive treasury publicity campaigns. Apparently, many of those who found themselves holding a Jutner counterfeit kept it as a souvenir instead of turning it over to the government. By 1947, the Secret Service held over 5,000 of Jutner's phony singles. Yet, despite what New Yorker writer S. St. Clair McKelway called a manhunt that exceeded in intensity and scope, any other manhunt in the chronicles of counterfeiting. Despite thousands of interviews and hundreds of thousands of flyers, the agency didn't have a clue to his identity. A few weeks before Christmas, 1947, Jutner's apartment caught fire. New York's bravest, in extinguishing the blaze, piled the old man's junk in an alley where a sudden snowstorm buried it. The homeless old man stayed in Queens with his daughter while his apartment was being repaired. On January 13, 1948, several neighborhood youths noticed some 30 strange-looking $1 bills lying about the alley. Unlike countless businessmen who had accepted Juttner's signals, The kids instantly realized the bills were bogus. One of their parents took some to the West 100th Street Station House, where detectives identified them as counterfeit. The Secret Service quickly identified the tenant, whose singed furnishings had been dumped in the alley, and arrested Jutner when he returned to his apartment a few days later. Jutner had succeeded because he passed no more bogus singles than necessary for his survival, only knocking off a few bills whenever he needed food or help paying his $25 monthly rent. Blandly admitting everything, Jutner was sentenced to a year and a day and fined one dollar. He was released after four months to live with his daughter and her family. After McKelway profiled him in The New Yorker, 20th Century Fox filmed Mr. 880, with Edmund Gwen, renowned as Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street, in the title role. Jutner made more money from the film than he had as a counterfeiter.
0: And great job on that, Robbie. And thanks to Bill Breich, our friend from New Hampshire, for delivering this story. And my goodness, we're not recommending this as a possible retirement hobby. But my goodness, one dollar at a time, not 20s, not hundreds, dollar at a time. This man had, if anything, great discipline. And what a great story. And we love telling, well, sort of funny stories. I mean, our whole team was laughing at this one. It was quite amusing. Bill Breich, thanks so much again, our friend from New Hampshire. And Emmerich Jutner's story, the best worst counterfeiter in American history, here on Our American Stories. (laughs) We continue here with our american stories and now it's time for our rule of law series where our own alex cortez brings us stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives and today we hear from a guy from westchester pennsylvania named kevin gates we're now going off the record
1: having heard the approval of both attorneys to go off the record at this time The time is approximately 8.44 p.m. We are off the record.
2: So after a long day of a deposition where it's highly adversarial, it's highly riddled with conflict and with a prosecutor who simply doesn't know what he's asking about or what he's talking about, but he's making his intentions very clear that he just really doesn't care. So after a day-long deposition, they asked me to leave the room. And this is when I had an energy bar attorney representing me. And he came out uh, 10 minutes later and relayed the message from the government attorney, who said, Kevin's a businessman, isn't he? He knows that it's cheaper to settle than it is to fight this investigation. And when he relayed that to me, and I was just like felt like the weight of the world on my shoulders I'm like oh my gosh all that I've worked for the government can just take it away because it can not because it should or it's right but just because it can and I guess it was that night on the on the train ride home I said you know what it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen I'm gonna I'm gonna fight this because I can
3: Kevin Gates is in the less than 3% of people who refuse to settle with the government when they come after you. Here's the man and Eagle Scout that they should have thought twice about.
2: We are the youngest of six. I guess my childhood is uh, very similar to Rich's.
3: Oh yeah, Kevin is an identical twin. The government will be taking on two of them. Here's Rich.
4: Our mother was diagnosed with cancer when we were in second grade. She ended up passing away when we were in seventh grade.
2: We knew it was terminal. I remember having very clear conversations when we were in fourth or fifth grade. Our mom shown us how to do our own laundry and do the dishes and said,
4: you know, one day when I'm dead and buried, you're gonna need to learn how to do this stuff. I remember not understanding it's, and then, but you have a different perspective when you have your own kids. When each of my kids, Got through some part of the seventh grade, I I notified each one of them and said, this is how old I was the day that my mother passed away. Our father, he was incredible. Also during that time
2: when our mother had cancer, he lost his job. So I remember that as being a pretty interesting time. I didn't fully, couldn't even begin to comprehend the magnitude of the stress and the pressure that both of my parents were under. But I remember my, my dad taking long walks when he was unemployed. When our mom passed away, my dad did remarry to a woman who, unfortunately, also later passed away to leukemia as well. My dad lost two wives, and he also lost two sons as well.
4: So I was a chemical engineer.
2: We were both went to University of Virginia, applied to the engineering school, and then Right out of school, ended up working at Capital One. And right out of school, that was right when Capital One was starting.
4: Um, And I think the big thing for me is I realized that I wanted to work for myself. We'd started several businesses by that time. We were importing rugs from Guatemala. So I had this kind of entrepreneurial bug.
2: In my early 20s, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And this is kind of, um, I was working in a cubicle and not not loving it. I don't think I'm well suited for standard corporate America. And as a hobby, started trading in the equity market because it was fun and interesting. But we didn't have any money to invest. I graduated with a negative net worth. I had student loans. I had a car loan. But the way that we worked it out was we applied for as many credit cards as we could. So I think I was 24 years old, had a negative net worth, and I may have had 15 or 20 credit cards in my wallet.
4: And ended up starting a business with my brother, and it was buying and selling in the stock market.
2: So we get along probably 90, you know, seven
4: ninety eight percent of the time, but when we don't get along, we can really fight. It was awkward. I remember it was at the office and we got into some disagreement and we ended up in like a wrestling match and maybe punching each other. I remember the, our colleagues kind of just looking at us, thinking, what, you know, how do you handle this one? And we, I think we decided somewhere around there that, you know, we, we have to outgrow that.
2: The good news is I'm 47 years old and it's been over a decade since we've had a fist fight. So we're, we're, we're maturing.
3: In 2008, the Gates brothers started trading in an energy market called PJM, which enables utility companies to reduce the risks of their investments and therefore enables them to offer lower prices to us. Who knew trading could be such a good thing? And one day, when the twins received something called a rebate payment that was now being offered to everyone participating in the market, including investors, it made their trading even more attractive. So naturally, they increased it. But as Eagle Scouts would, these guys were so ethical that they did something unusual first. So, after we got
2: the retroactive rebates in the fall of 2009, we contacted PJM to confirm that they had intended to send us that. And, you know, this is the complete opposite of the behavior of somebody who's committing a fraud. We're open and transparent with the market.
4: A trader who called the market center confirmed the specifics of these rebates. He was then asked to stop by a market monitor, and he did. I don't know that he had a legal obligation to stop, but he's a good player. He's a good person. He's an individual who's trying to work with the government and trying to follow the rule of law and trying to be responsible, or is
3: responsible. But the government regulator, the FERC, didn't see it that way. And in 2010, opened an investigation into the Gates Brothers company Powhatan.
2: We had no way of knowing that what they're now accusing us of was unlawful. To the contrary, their own statements predicted and effectively encouraged this exact behavior. But then they go after the fact and go after the people who responded to the incentives that they created. It's it's unbelievable. We continue to get data requests from the government. They brought me down later that year for a deposition. And I remember still at that time not fully appreciating any issues of what took place. So I was sent a request to answer questions. I packed up my bags and, you know, left work and I went down to Washington, D.C. I went the night before to meet with the attorneys who we had engaged, and they wanted to help prep me for the deposition. Uh, and I thought it was overkill. I thought the whole investigation was a joke. I, I knew it was a joke. Uh, the trades were so simple and straightforward. There was nothing here. I didn't understand why I felt I needed to be prepped for something that was so easy. It, it felt like a-, a waste of time, because I thought, Okay, of course, they're going to ask me a couple of questions, I'm going to give them the answers, and then they're going to let me go home. You know, I was kind of intrigued by the whole process, but never in my mind did I contemplate that, uh, that, that it would later turn out the, the way that it had, it had done. Because in my mind, yeah, okay, I'll go down, I'll waste one day of my life, but it'll kind of be a cool learning experience. I'll go down to, to Washington and explain to these guys what we were doing and that'll be the end of it, and then they'll thank me for my time, thank me to, you know, the service to help them out, and then they'll let me go.
0: And you've been hearing the story of the Gates Brothers, Kevin and Rich Gates, entrepreneurs, doing everything right, and by the way, we're rooting for these guys, right? They're the underdogs, they're the little guys, and the big guy they're fighting, well, it's their own government. And by the way, the government is trying to punish the Gates Brothers company, Powhatan, for something that wasn't against the law, until the government decided, after the fact, that it should be. And this is called an ex post facto law, which Alexander Hamilton called in Federalist Paper 78, quote, the favorite and most formidable instrument of tyranny. And it's why the founders explicitly forbade it in the U.S. Constitution. And that was in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 3. And my goodness, these founders were brilliant. They were thinking about things like that. The patent is in Article 1 as well. And my goodness, think about that, that we were protecting ideas, not just property, but intellectual property. And that's why we talk about the Constitution so much here on this show and rule of law. And when we come back, let me tell you about these Gates boys. They're fighters and they weren't taking these threats with anything else but a counter threat. You threaten me. I come back at you. The Gates don't relent. And when we come back, more of their story, their fighting story, a rule of law story, here on Our American Story. And we continue here with our American stories and with the story of identical twins, Kevin and Rich Gates, their trading firm Powhatan is being investigated by the government for making trades that not only weren't against the law, but were actually encouraged. Let's return to the Gates brothers and how they responded to this violation of the rule of law and their property rights.
2: Um, it wasn't the most productive communication. As a matter of fact, one of the, um, the attorneys from the government came in and fell asleep as he was sitting across the table from me. I've, I've, never, seen, I've never seen that in the private sector. I've never seen anything of the sort in the private sector. That just describes the environment that I was in. You know, they they were so unprepared that they were even willing to sleep during the deposition. They would ask me a question and I would ask for clarification and then they would move on to to something else and say, you know what, I don't even know what I was asking about. Why don't you, why don't we just go in a different direction? So it wasn't productive, but I left still not overly concerned The questions continued in the data request, and then I was later brought down, I think it was in 2011, for a deposition with the former prosecutor. His name is Steve Tabakman. who he fell asleep in 2010. Again, I went down the night before. I was still defended by the energy bar attorney. This attorney worked in D.C., and I think he had seen this story before. He he seemed to have an idea how it was going to unfold how the game was played in the energy bar, or maybe how the games played in, in DC generally. And I think he knew the role that he wanted in it. Despite the facts that were so simple, I think he wanted me to settle. In my opinion, he didn't want to fight. He didn't seem like he was willing to do what was in my best interest, but he wanted to get paid. I think he wanted me to pay all of his fees and settle for allegations of manipulation. He took me out the night before, and he introduced me to one of his partners who also charged a lot of money. I was perhaps taking the investigation more seriously because I was like, what's going on here? It's been almost a year and a half, and they haven't figured out that there's not a problem here, and why are they bringing me back, asking me more questions? So I had a little problem sleeping. I had had problems sleeping that night, went in the next morning, and spent a full day Answering Questions by Steve Tabakman, He's a prosecutor, and I guess some prosecutors think their job is to prosecute no matter what. And I believe that's what he thought, how how he was behaving. By way of example, he would ask me questions, and when I would give an answer that didn't fit his narrative, he would just subtly nod his head back and forth, shaking it back and forth like... You know, saying no, like, Kevin, I'm not happy with you. I mean, it can be pretty intimidating. You go in, you're sworn under oath. It can be intimidating. It is intimidating. And especially when somebody like that wields so much power, they have the weight and the resources of the government behind them. And when it's clear they don't give a damn about you or your family or the facts or the law, it's a a terrifying situation to be in. You know, over the years, I've learned that when you're regulated by the FERC or the government generally, you have to play nice. Over the last decade or so, this particular agency has extracted over a billion dollars of settlements from market participants and destroyed many, many careers. And the big banks couldn't fight. Barclays, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, their relationship with the government is more important than any sort of facts of a case. So when the government comes knocking, they have to play nice and they have to settle even if they, in their heart of hearts, believe or know they didn't do anything wrong. Likewise, the little guys, the individual traders who have 100,000 to spend in litigation, they can't fight. And we were in this, you you know, kind of this sweet middle spot where we weren't, we weren't beholden to the FERC. This was not our, at the time, was not our career. Our relationship with them was not relevant. And what was more relevant was the facts and truth and justice. Plus, we were fortunate that we had been successful in investing and we had the resources to fight. If they had come a decade earlier, they, they very well could have bankrupted me. You have to be prepared to spend a decade of your life and probably $10 million to to fight this. And this is money that effectively goes down the drain. It's money that you never see again. And we were just very, very lucky. Well, (laughs) lucky that we're born in America and we can fight the government, but also lucky of when it had
4: happened and we could fight for the truth. It is tough for a big company to stand up to the government. Wall Street's number one client is the U.S. government. They're the ones that control their destiny, have the biggest influence on their destiny. Having said that, if more companies fought back, it would make the world a lot better off. Having this cozy relationship where the government comes and levels, nonsensical allegations against your business and writing a check and giving the government good headlines, it might make good decision in the short term, but long term, it's very costly for that business and for society at large. In the original attorneys we had, it was clear to me, crystal clear, uh,
2: that it seemed like their relationship with, they had with the FERC and the people at the FERC were more important than the relationship with me, the, the client. I was irrelevant. I was going to pay their invoices that they sent to me and then they wanted me to settle, but they didn't want to rock the boat at all. They didn't. I asked them early on, I said, how does this play out? After I realized that the FERC didn't care about the truth or the facts. And I said, how does this play out? And they said, well, you're going to, well, you'll settle on the courtroom steps. And I said, to hell with that, I'm, I'm not settling on the courtroom steps. And that's when I realized that I needed another attorney, but that was clearly what their objective was. I didn't think they were fighting for the truth, not fighting for justice, not, not fighting for right or wrong. I think they were basically just setting me up for a settlement. I remember thinking it was kind of a surreal experience because I needed their help and I felt like these high-priced attorneys just just didn't want to fight. And that's fine. I understand that if you don't want to fight and don't want to litigate and don't want to do that, just but just say that up front. Tell that up front, hey, you're important to me, but you're really not that important to me. I can try to cut you a, a good settlement deal, but I'm not willing to go to the mat and fight for this. So fired those
0: attorneys. And we're really now deeply rooting for the Gates Brothers because, my goodness, what they're going through? Well, this happens all the time, folks, to American business. You may not be aware of it because you don't own businesses and it's not like your bosses are going to tell you about these things. But they're a cost to you. They're a cost to society because when they settle these unjust cases, well, they pass along the cost to customers. But the worst part of this is that it's just a total abdication of rule of law. And when we come back... We're going to continue with the Gates Brothers saga. But know this, less than 3% of all people fight their own government in cases like this. And I think every American understands this because the agency that's over us, the federal agency, is the IRS. we've all been there where our accountant tells us, hey, look, you didn't do anything wrong, but the IRS wants you to pay this. And you just better pay it. And by the way, now we know what it's like to be guilty uh, first and have to prove our innocence. And of course, the accountant always says the same thing just pay. And we do. And that's what so many businesses go through under their federal regulation regimes. The same exact relationship we have with the IRS. And let's just say, I don't know many Americans who love their relationship with the IRS. When we come back, the Kevin and Rich Gates saga continues. Our rule of law series continues here on Our American Story. We return to Our American Stories and to the Kevin and Rich Gates story. Let's pick up where we last left off.
4: During one point of the investigation, we had sent them legal documents, a brief describing our side of the situation, and that was sent to them on a Friday and the following Monday, they called us up and they said, we dismissed everything. They apparently read these hundreds of pages of documents and decided that everything was taken out of context. I mean, it was a very clear situation where they're trying to send us a message saying that we don't care, we're not listening, you know, what you say doesn't matter. My sense is they looked at that legal brief and said, oh, they're, you know, $150,000 lighter. If I worked for an agency or government or anywhere, I would read the information, I would try to listen. In the subsequent months or years, they asked for a document that was attached in that filing and said they would like to see it, and we said, well, it was already in that filing. And my sense is they asked for it because they never read the original filing.
3: Finally, in 2013, three years after FERC opened the investigation, they released their 28-page preliminary findings that the Gates Brothers firm Powhatan were market manipulators. And the twins had had enough. Rich
4: and I had come up with the idea of sending a very short response to them. Our response to them was a two sentence response saying your preliminary findings make no sense. was the first sentence and that was for a reason. We had finally given up. We said if you don't care, if you're going to treat us this way, well it's over. We're done.
3: Done trying to convince the government of the truth. So the Gates brothers decided to do something radical something that no one's probably ever done before. They created a website to post all of the government's communications with them, all of the filings in the case, everything for anyone to see. It was originally designed as an insurance policy
2: against our reputations. And we said, if you're gonna bully us, you're not gonna do this in the back alley. We're gonna drag you out on the street so that the streetlights can expose your abusive incompetent behavior with a hope or expectation of holding you accountable.
4: And some business partners appreciate what we're doing and fully understand it, but there are still are business partners that will work with us if and when these allegations eventually end and have decided not to in the interim. So, you know, there still is damage that's being done. The FERC still has caused damage to us, even though we have responded the way we did. And this response that we've made has been very costly, very time consuming. It's not what I signed up for. It's not what I expected to be doing in the prime of my career, is you know fighting a media campaign of my own reputation against the federal government. There's been you know, f- physical problems as well, you know stresses from sleepless nights to gaining weight to not working out. It can be very trying. The last several years since we went public with the investigation, uh, it's been very cathartic. Put us in a better position emotionally and relieved some stress. But it'll every, you know, my brother and I talk about this every single day for the last five years. When do you think it's going to end? Why hasn't it ended now? Why are they still doing this? So it's, you know, it's it's a topic of constant conversation. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, we're very thankful, lucky to have each other to take this fight on together. Without him, I don't know that I would have been able to do what we've done. You, know, you compare this to what my father went through, and it's nothing. You know, losing a spouse compared to this, this is, this is nothing. Um, oftentimes,
2: during, you know, when there are issues in the case, I'm distracted, um, perhaps emotionally detached, and, and thinking about other things, and that's... That's
4: not fair to my wife, that's not fair to my kids. I I hope that never want anyone else to be treated this way by the federal government. We do feel like it is our calling to bring this one home and eventually help the world see what was on the other side. They finally brought charges
2: in 2015. They sent us a bill and asked us to pay them, I think it was like $35 million dollars to settle our charges for supposedly manipulating these markets, and we denied manipulation, and then they sued us in court and went to a judge and said, we've already kind of adjudicated this at the administrative level. We just need you to kind of rubber stamp our findings, which just seemed incredibly obnoxious to me because we hadn't even had a chance to ask them one question. We didn't have a neutral arbiter. We were on the defensive the whole time, you know, responding to their subpoenas and their data requests and their deposition requests, but we didn't have a chance to ask them one question. We didn't have an independent judge evaluate the merits of the case. And I don't think they really believed in that argument. And they had already lost that same argument, I think, in at least five other court cases. But I think their real objective was just to kick the can down the road and bleed us of resources. Where we are now is we're almost nine years deep into an investigation, have spent probably three, three and a half million dollars of direct expenses, and haven't had a chance to ask the government one question yet. We haven't been able to present our arguments to a judge. We're just largely on the defensive.
4: Earlier this decade, there was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court about the statute of limitations, which basically describes how long the government can have its hooks into one of its citizens. This ruling made it seem pretty clear to me that agencies needed to bring cases to court within five years from the date when actions took place. In our case, the trading activities took place in the summer of 2010. But FERC is now arguing that this Supreme Court ruling has some ambiguity to it, and, and they can bring their actions within five years after they issue something called the penalty assessment order. And it's issued at a time of their own choosing. This all explains why it's uh, 2019 and we're arguing over trades that took place almost a decade ago. The problem with their argument is that it could be an unlimited amount of time to bring charges that they could investigate for 50 years and then issue this certain filing. And and then they're saying that the clock starts ticking at that time. So to the rule of law, it doesn't quite make no sense to me. We're incredibly fortunate
2: that we have an independent judiciary, and I think that, for the most part, the establishment works. The rule of law does ultimately prevail. That being said, the country's a lot less fair and a lot less just than I had imagined when I was younger. My wife and I were in St. Petersburg, Russia, I think, three or four years ago. And just looking at the terror in the people's eyes when you started asking them any political questions. We did a two-day tour, a private tour with this woman. So the first day I was asking questions about the banking system and the government and warming her up with questions like that. And she said, basically, I don't put money in banks. I just put it in the walls of my house. And then at the end of the first day, we were talking to her about what's true what's not true you know we were talking about how the government owns all the media in russia and she said well we get cnn too and i've i've seen things on cnn that i don't believe to be true and then the next day i was walking with her and we brought up that comment about the media and i forget exactly how the conversation progressed but i said something like oh that's interesting because in our country were told that Putin murders his political opponents. And I wasn't saying that he does. You know, the fact of the matter is, I, I happen to believe that he does, but it doesn't, that's a moot point. I just simply stated a fact that in our country, this is what our media tells us. And she, we were walking down a path. And she immediately took a right turn where there was <laughs> where there was nowhere to walk. She just wanted to get as far away from me as possible. Didn't even want to get near that conversation. And then later when we got to the garden or whatever she was showing us, she continued the tour and acted like nothing had happened. But it was clear as day that she was just terrified of her government, the fact that she wouldn't even engage in a conversation about what my media tells me about Putin. She wouldn't put money in the bank because she didn't trust the institutions of her country. I realized that, just how incredibly lucky we are to be in this country. You know, I envisioned living there and I'm sure I would have been murdered. We're just absolutely lucky that we can you know, get accused by the government of committing a fraud and respond the way that we have by publicly taking interviews and getting it engaged politically. We're, we're incredibly blessed to be able to do that. So, I, I, not a day goes by that I don't appreciate that. That being said, not a day goes by that I don't realize wow, there's a lot of opportunity for improvement here.
0: And you've been listening to the Kevin and Rich Gates story, the Powhatan story, that's their company, nine years into this battle with the government. By the way, a length of time itself that violates the rule of law. The law should be swift and fair, not dragged out forever. And by the way, it's dragged out forever to advantage the government and just wipe the resources of the little guy. Big guys can play, little guys get killed. These guys were in between, and they were able to fight. They're now in court about another way the government's violated the rule of law, and that is the statute of limitations, which expired before the government charged them. But as the Gates said, we are fortunate to be in America where we have access to the rule of law at all. And as they so eloquently noted, in this country, we're just not afraid of our own government, or we shouldn't be. The rule of law story, this time the Kevin and Rich Gates story on Our American Stories. This is our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rauch, who's written The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And we were just talking about how so many of us experience more happiness and satisfaction in our youth, and then later in our lives, than during midlife. Something that even the great 19th century painter Thomas Cole showed in his work. By the way, the National Gallery is in Washington, D.C. His work is there. Worth a trip just to see it. It's so staggering and so beautiful. The Adventures of Life. Jonathan, you were motivated to look into this topic of happiness and ultimately write this book because of your own life. It's odd to be in your mid-40s having achieved all of your important life goals, but feeling down. Talk about your own journey, starting with this quote from your book. Quote, I was in the closet with my unhappiness.
5: Well, I was, and Carl is. I think Carl said that he only ever told one other person how he was feeling, and it wasn't his wife. I talked to another guy who was going through the same thing, and he said that he had tried telling a friend or two, and, and then he stopped doing that because one of them gossiped about it, and he he didn't want to be a source of actual ridicule. You know, oh, Lee's going through his midlife crisis. Hey, Lee, when are you going to buy the sports car? Ha, ha, ha. Right. So the happiness curve is totally normal, natural, and healthy. It's very unpleasant if you're going through it, but it has a payoff, which we should talk about, which is what happens in our 50s, 60s, and beyond. It's reorienting us to be less focused on ambition and achievement as a source of our personal well being and more focused on connection and community, which comes later in life and is a much more fulfilling source of happiness. But in between there's this nasty transition when we're disappointed in the happiness achievement has brought us and the new values haven't really arrived yet. That's a natural process, right? It's a little bit like adolescence. It's just something many people go through. I mean a lot of people have a hard time in adolescence. So, you know, fine, we help them get through it. But we make it much worse we do that in a few ways and we should talk about all of them but one of them is what you just mentioned we make fun of this period in life and we make people feel like middle age is supposed to be the peak of life you know they're masters of the universe they're taking care of their kids and their parents and they've got the mortgage and they've got the hope high profile career and they're good at everything they're supermen and superwomen so If people are feeling bad in this portion of life and it does turn out to be a very vulnerable portion of life, well, they're bottling it up. They're feeling like I can't tell anyone about this. And you know, I'm a gay man and I lived through life in the closet. And very quickly when I started hearing people's stories, I realized this is the closet all over again. I mean, it's never going to be super easy to be gay. But having to bottle it all up, be ashamed of it, not tell anyone, go on about your life without opening up about the true you, that makes it much worse. And that's what's going on with Carl.
0: Indeed. And I would say this about so many things in life. The more we open up and share, the more we can know that other people in the world are going through the same thing, Jonathan. Let's talk about happiness and income. Quote, all the evidence says that on average, people are no happier today than people were 50 years ago, writes Richard Laird, a prominent British economist. Yet, at the same time, average incomes doubled. This paradox is equally true for the U.S., Britain, and Japan. So economic well-being doesn't make a person happier or less happy, Jonathan?
5: Well, it's a bit more complicated than that because poverty is immiserating. So getting out of poverty is really important. But beyond a certain point, they're diminishing returns of additional income because it turns out that once you're beyond the poverty level, you're, you're living pretty well, it's just not actually that helpful to have your fourth or fifth you know, million dollar. In fact, it can be counterproductive because of what psychologists call the hedonic treadmill, which is when you're in a race for money or status, you're always comparing yourself above you to the people who are higher than you and you're trying to catch up. But there's always going to be someone higher than you. So you become like a gerbil on one of those little running, running loop cycle things. The more you try to get status, the more you feel like you're not getting there. So beyond a certain point, investing and making more money or having more status turns out not to be a reliable way to increase your well-being, and sometimes can make it worse.
0: Here's the most fundamental finding of happiness economics you wrote. The factors that most determine our happiness are social and not material. Talk about that.
5: This is, this is the core finding of research in multiple disciplines now, economics, psychology, neuroscience. Human beings are Tribal animals, we're social animals, we're wired to be in groups. And the main determinant of our happiness is having trusting, loving relationships, supportive relationships, reliable relationships with the people around us. Investing in people and connections and community in a supportive way, that is the opposite of the hedonic treadmill. It turns out that those, that's like putting happiness in the bank. It not only makes you more satisfied with your life in the short term, it's cumulative. It's it's not a situation where the goalposts move. Unfortunately, when we're young, it's hard to focus on those things because we're wired to be ambitious when we're young. Evolution wants us to go out and, you know, really impress, impress our fellow tribes people and get lots of status and lots of social connections and, you know, a fat Rolodex and us lots of mating opportunities so that means early in life it's harder to live according to this what we now know about happiness doesn't mean we shouldn't try though
0: indeed let's talk about aristotle and the virtues he wrote about centuries ago relating to life it turns out after all these centuries he was on the mark about a lot of things human beings are still in the end jonathan human beings
5: yeah it's funny i wonder about aristotle was he a creature from outer space, because he got so much right, and it took really modern science to understand how right he was. Aristotle is a Greek philosopher, of course, um, fifth century B.C., and he makes this important distinction that real happiness is not just transitory cheerfulness. It's a sense of fulfillment with your life, a sense of satisfaction with your life. And that, he says, comes not from pleasure, but from inculcating in yourself a virtuous life, which basically means doing things that are good for yourself and other people and making that a habit. So you don't even have to think about it that much. And all of this turns out to be exactly true, so much so that, you know, I kind of wonder, how did he know that? There's a big basic distinction between Happiness in the sense of emotional, feeling good right now. And happiness in the sense of well-being, feeling satisfaction with your life as a whole. Everything we're talking about in this conversation is about the latter. Indeed. It's about that sense of well-being, which is much more important for life satisfaction overall um, than just your mood.
0: You know, I don't think people can hear that often enough. The culture, Jonathan, sends so many messages directly to the contrary. Buy this, you'll be happier. Go here, you'll be happier. Travel here, you'll be happier. Love all these different people as opposed to one person, and you'll be happier. In the age of Tinder and Instagram, this is very counterintuitive.
5: Yeah, that's the thing about Aristotle. He's been rediscovered by modern science, as has wisdom, which is another piece of Aristotle, which we should come back to. But we have, as a culture, spent the last multiple decades moving in the opposite direction. The idea behind Facebook, you know, was supposed to be we'll connect the world and everyone will be happier because we'll have a zillion connections instead of just, you know, these 30 or so key people in our lives that we mostly talk to face to face. Well, it turns out the opposite is true. It turns out what we're doing on Facebook is not connecting, it's displaying, as psychologists put it, um, which means showing off our carefully curated lifestyle homepages in which we're always happy and we're always on vacation and and showing, you know, pictures of big smiley pictures, or we're displaying our animosity to the other side, to groups that we hate, which is a way of ingratiating ourselves with our own group. So that means, you know, we're on Twitter, slamming people and trolling. So it turns out once again, that, That the old wisdom about this is right there's no substitute for close connections in person face to face with real people
0: and when we come back we're to continue this terrific conversation with Jonathan Rauch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, go to Amazon and buy this book, again it's The Happiness Curve and I'll tell you you'll feel happier about a lot of things and better if you're going through some things you're going to get through those things more than likely and these are just, well, it's just a part of life and living. These stages of life. The Happiness Curve, Jonathan Rausch, we continue our conversation after these messages here on Our American Stories. <laughs> ¶¶ is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love bringing you stories from our very best writers and Jonathan Rauch is an award-winning author with seven books and many more magazine credits to his name but the book we're going to talk about today is personal it's called The Happiness Curve Why Life Gets Better After 50 and it's Jonathan's detective story about why he and so many of us fall into a funk right when we appear to have it all. And Jonathan, you start your book with the story of a man named Carl. Tell us about him.
5: Carl is a guy in his 40s. He's objectively super successful in life. He's got a good marriage. He's got kids that are happy. He recently switched to the job kind of thing he's always wanted to do. And yet he feels strangely unfulfilled. He comes Home at night thinking, what's the matter with my life? Why am I so discontent? He started to feel like there's something wrong with him. and he, he told me he was actually starting to feel a little bit scared. He wasn't even telling his wife about it because he didn't want her to get upset. So he was holding it all in. And I heard this And when I was 54, about 10 years older. And I thought, that is my life. That is exactly what I went through.
0: You know, you wrote that, quote, it feels kind of conceited to bring it up to my friends. They just kind of look at me and say, geez, you got it all. So there's sort of a a shame, oddly enough, in feeling this feeling of, if not depression, uh, unease, fear, at a time when most people would look at you and say, you've got it all. What do you got to complain about?
5: Well, that's right. His subjective well-being, how good he feels about his life, and his objective well being, the circumstances of his life have completely parted ways. And and that too is what happened with me. I knew I was in trouble when I was forty five. I'm a journalist, magazine writer, and I won a national magazine award, which is the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for the magazine business. It just doesn't get any better. And that made me feel fulfilled for like ten days. And then these creeping ideations of, you know, I'm wasting my life. I should quit everything and go somewhere else. They, they came back, and that's when I knew what was going on was strange and irrational. I felt just the way Carl did. I haven't earned these shows. I should be grateful. Why am I not grateful?
0: Yep, yeah, why am I not grateful? Let's talk about Dominic. Much of his identity was wrapped up in his work, and things hadn't turned out like he expected, and yet he characterized the stage of his life is appreciative. So talk about him in contrast to Carl.
5: Dominic is a little older than Carl, about five years when I spoke to them. They're actually very similar demographically. They're a closely matched pair. They even travel in similar social circles. Dominic has been where Carl was a few years ago. He felt that same dissatisfaction and restlessness and unease and sense that he was wasting his life. But by his early fifties he senses he's begun to kind of turn around. He's he's feeling like his expectations are a little bit lower and he's somehow feeling more appreciative of what he's got on a day to day basis, just you know, being with his daughter, his family. And I at the start of my book I juxtaposed these two because in many ways the big difference between them is actually their age. Carl is five years younger he's at a different point in the happiness curve.
0: Let's talk about Thomas Cole and his series of four paintings, The Voyage of Life. This is a 19th century painter who I think had stumbled upon these insights in his art long before social psychologists had come to the same conclusions we'll get to in a bit. Talk about Thomas Cole.
5: I beheld him for the first time when I was 20 years old. And they just they just stopped me short, partly because of their beauty, but partly because of the story they tell. So Cole is a landscape artist, and he sets out on a commission to do a series of paintings depicting the voyage of life starting with childhood. And what they show is a baby, then the same young man, then middle aged, then old age, in a boat on a river. In the front of the boat, on the prow is an hourglass. Behind the boat is a guardian angel in most of the paintings, out of sight of the young man in the boat. The first one shows the baby emerging from the womb into a kind of garden of Eden. The second one shows a young man exactly the same age I was when I first saw it, about the age of 20. And he's reaching for a castle in the sky. And those are his ambitions for life, not just his ambitions For accomplishing things, but his ambitions for happiness, because he thinks if he accomplishes the things he wants to do, that that's going to be fulfilling. Well, surprise, the next painting is midlife. Rapids, dark clouds, craggy rocks, um, the tiller is knocked off the boat. He's looking overhead and and praying for deliverance, but blocking his view of the heavens are dark clouds and, and demons. And that's Thomas Cole's portrayal of where Carl is at. What's so interesting about these is that there are no people, buildings, city, society, nothing like that. It's a portrayal of our psychological journey years before there even was such a thing as psychologically. Cole is saying, this is how it's going to feel to be you at these different portions of your life. And it turns out he's exactly right.
0: You know, it's interesting when you're going through that, and I I hadn't seen these paintings in at least 15 years back when I lived in D.C., and they startled me. But what I did not see in that final painting, because I had my own biases about old age, is I saw all the darkness in that fourth painting and not the light, and that was my own bias, and we're going to get to that later as well. But when you were younger, did you see the same thing? Do we see what we want to see or see what our experience allows us to see, Jonathan?
5: I saw myself exactly in youth because I was 19 and expected great things for myself. I just didn't know what they were going to be. But I thought, you know, I knew I I had an inkling I wanted to be a writer. And I thought if I could even just ever get one article published in a major magazine, just one, I'd feel fulfilled for the entire rest of my life. So that was completely accurate. It painted my life. And I also remember thinking, well, that middle-aged one, that's not going to be me. I mean, I knew it was something like that for my father, but I thought, well, you know, any good thing that happens to me, I'll be grateful for it and satisfied. It. So, in the future painting, the future me, in middle age the young me was not ready to see that.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jonathan Roush author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. This is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. And we return with author Jonathan Rauch and his book, *The Happiness Curve*: Why Life Gets Better After Fifty. Go to Amazon and buy this book. You won't put it down. You'll learn so much. Give it to a friend too, especially if they're in their mid-thirties, early forties. Heck, give it to people in their twenties too. They can at least get a sense of what's coming in life. Then they can get through life in a better way. In a, in a, in a. Well, in a more relaxed way, let's talk about the curve part of your life, Jonathan. We live in a society that celebrates and glamorizes youth, but on average, most people reach their highest levels of life satisfaction in their later years, not in childhood, not in midlife, when many of us are at our professional peak. This is a fairly new discovery. Talk about it.
5: Well, yeah, it goes back about 20, 25 years. The biggest the strangest thing I learned in writing The Happiness Curve is that midlife crisis is very often literally about nothing. And we should come back to that because that's that throws off a lot of people. But the most surprising thing I learned is what you just said, that other things being equal, of course, individual mileage will vary. But other things being equal, as we get older, our life satisfaction increases right through old age. We're actually programmed by evolution as we move out of our fifties and beyond to invest more in those key relationships with other human beings, to care more about community and less about personal advancement. And that plus changes in the brain, which actually make us more positive about life as we get old, actually increases contentment, even in many cases, if we're ailing and sick, this is the opposite of the stereotype of aging, which is old people are crotchety, lonely, depressed. And after about age 50, you know, it's going to be a long, slow decline. And of course, that makes it worse because everyone who's unhappy at age 45 or 50 thinks, well, I'm, this, is, this is bad and this is the peak. It only gets worse. So then they get pessimistic as well as disappointed. So it's very important for people to understand that that's not true at all. The stereotype of aging is is just plain wrong, and this is one of the most robust findings out there. Um, Things get better, emotional satisfaction gets better as you get older, you get better at regulating your emotions, experience less regret, less stress in any given situation, more positivity, even true of what you perceive. They put people in brain scanners and older brains react more to positivity You know, things like smiley faces and less less to negativity, things like frowning faces.
0: So I tell you right about time also a lot, Jonathan. Time matters. Those were two words you wrote together. It was a sentence and it was a big one. Talk about why you put those two words together.
5: We imagine that aging is the passage of time in our lives is a neutral process. So, you know, it's just the clock ticking. It's the background. Or we imagine that aging is a process of slow decline because, of course, you know, our bodies deteriorate over time and then eventually we die. So those are the two models of how age affects us in life. But they're both wrong. The big finding of the last really, it's only been nailed down in the past 10 years or so. It's really brand new stuff. Um, In multiple disciplines, is that the shape of time is U-shaped. And that's the happiness curve. The passage of time tends to reduce our life satisfaction, other things being equal, from early adulthood, you know, when we're about 20, to about midlife. And we'll experience typically a nadir, a bottom to this cycle at around the age of 50, it varies depending on country, and of course, individuals are different. And then time, just when we least expect it to, just when we've given up and we think, Oh my God, I'm in for a lifetime of disappointment and gloom, time turns around, it switches sides, and it goes into this reverse cycle of positive feedback where we're feeling better about life and we're positively surprised that we're feeling better because we thought, you know, we're gonna decline into sadness and death. And and those two things feed on themselves. So that's the shape. Of time, And that's what Thomas Cole's paintings are really about. He makes this clear, if we look hard, we see that there's an hourglass is the prominent feature of three of the paintings. So his message is, this is what time is going to do to you.
0: And let's talk about that midlife malaise because you said it's often about, well, like Seinfeld's show, nothing. Talk about that.
5: Yeah, we imagine that if we're not feeling good about life, then there must be something wrong with our life, something we've got to change, you know, job, marriage. In my case, it was job. When I started having this fog of disappointment that I couldn't seem to get away from, I started fantasizing about escaping, walking, quitting my job, and escaping to some other whole different kind of line of work. I didn't know what. It was, it was just a fantasy. But lots of people experienced that. Well, it turns out human beings are not very good at attributing the causes of our happiness and unhappiness. What I was really doing was flailing around. My rational mind was looking for a way to explain what in fact was going on just because of changes in my brain and because of my age. What I was in fact feeling, this rough, rough patch in my 40s, this was a built-in transition. Lots of people go through it. Not everybody, but lots of people. It's totally normal. But it's not about anything. It's just change. One way that we that we have that confirms that is that the same pattern of declining happiness followed by increasing happiness for the bottom in the middle of life has turned up in chimps and orangutans. And there, you, you know pretty well it's not about anything because they don't have you know careers and and families and marriages and all that. So the problem is. The happiness curve, age-related dissatisfaction, as, as I call it, is not really about anything. It's just something that's happening. It's like, you know, what is adolescence about? Well, you know, it's a stage, right? It's natural human development. But we make the mistake of thinking it must be about something, so we leave our marriages, we quit our job. For most people... Midlife dissatisfaction, the bottom of the happiness curve is not a crisis. It's the opposite of a crisis. It's just a long, slow slog and we live with it and go on with our lives. It's not, it's not acute depression. It's just a big nuisance. If we misattribute it and we go out and make, you know, big life mistakes based on the false idea that what we really need is to throw all the, the whole pack of cards in the air, quit our job, leave our marriage and go off to Tahiti, well, That becomes midlife crisis. Most people don't have that, but a U-curve turns into a V-curve, This sudden sharp crash, often because we make these mistakes. So it's really important to know, if you're in a midlife slump, it's probably not about you. It may not be about your life. You may need change in midlife, as at any other time of life. Change is often good, but don't be radical. Don't be disruptive. Don't be impulsive. Impulsivity is not your friend at this stage. Plan it carefully. Talk to people. Make sure it's a progressive, sensible change for you.
0: And when we come back, more with author Jonathan Rauch. The book is The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And if you like what you hear here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And we'll send you the five best stories each week. And this is a story in the end, not only about Jonathan rausch's curve, his happiness curve, and his experience at the bottom of that curve, but all of our lives. And we all know what he's talking about. I think that so many of you are nodding and thinking, aha, that's what this was all about, this journey. When we come back, more with Jonathan Rausch. And thanks always to MyPillow.com. The folks there, well, they they make the best pillows in America. And if you want some real happiness, a good night's sleep will get you there. Go to MyPillow.com and tell them, well, at least enter the promo code STORIES to get their very best specials. That's MyPillow.com. And again, my wife and I use them. We actually fight over whose pillow is whose. And we think we like each other's pillows more than our own. It's very strange. MyPillow.com. Real happiness is a good night's sleep. When we come back, more with author Jonathan Rauch. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with author Jonathan Rauch, whose own midlife unhappiness prompted him to take a deep dive into the science of happiness throughout human life. In writing his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, he discovered that on average, people develop higher life satisfaction later in their life, even as they're getting sick more often and can't do all the things they once did. Jonathan, in your chapter called The Paradox of Aging, we meet a 94-year-old woman named Nora who rates her life as 100% satisfied with everything. Tell us about Nora.
5: Nora um, actually passed away since I wrote those words. She was 94, and she, I don't know if I put this in the book, but she had a cancer diagnosis at the time. And yet there she was saying it was the most fulfilling part of her life ever, even though she had some terrible losses. Her husband had died many years ago, and she'd been single. Um, she'd been the caregiver for her sister who had had Alzheimer's, who had died, and that had been a rough patch. She was very wise, and she said, these things that used to seem like they mattered so much, I'm not using her words, but she said they seem ephemeral now. People later in life feel like they no longer have anything to prove. They feel like they can focus more on the, on the most important things in life, and that's partly because their brains have changed to allow them to do that. And it's, it's very common, there's tons of evidence now, just tons, that what I saw in Nora and other people, I surveyed lots of people for my book and interviewed lots of people, that this is a, a very deep phenomenon. This is, this is really changes in our brains and values as we age that make it easier to be satisfied and easier to be wise.
0: You know, you write, quote, fortunately, the depressive realism of middle age turns out to be, well, unrealistic. Life indeed gets better, much better. Again, this is not what the culture sells us. Old age is like death in the culture.
5: Yeah, one of the reasons I wrote this book is it's all the stuff I'd wish that I could have known when I was 40. And by the time I was 50, I was so pessimistic about the future because I thought at that point, you know, 10 or so years of this fog of disappointment. And part of the reason I was so gloomy about the future is what you just said. You know, the story that our society says is, well, it's all downhill from here. If I had just known that if I can just wait this thing out, not make any big mistakes, that it's got a wonderful payoff. It's a transition. It's not midlife crisis. It's it's midlife transition to a different brain and a different value set that turn out to be more rewarding. I'm textbook. I seem to be like right from central casting. My U-curve bottomed out in my late 40s, around the time I lost my parents and actually had some major setbacks in life. And I started feeling like maybe it was turning around by the time I was 51 or 52. I'm 58 now. And of course, you know, life is life, right? There's setbacks, there are disappointments, there's anger and, and all kinds of stuff. And of course, there's politics right now. But despite all that, I also feel gradually like I'm getting more settled. All these voices and fantasies about escape and worthlessness have, have pretty much gone. So that's, that's the real story.
0: Some really prominent social and behavior scientist, Jonathan, came to a pretty startling conclusion in 2011. I'm going to quote again from your book. The peak of emotional life may not occur until well into the seventh decade and you wrote right after that, the seventh decade exclamation point. Why that exclamation point?
5: It's so counterintuitive. It's what you just said earlier, Lee. You know, we, we just imagine that by the age of 70, much less, you know, 80, that we'll be in sad decline. And it's it's just not true. The emotional peak of life is much later. And you mentioned earlier that we have this idea that youth is, you know, it's a time of, of gloriousness and happiness and Well, most of us have been through that period of life. And the reality about our 20s is that that they're a time of extreme emotional volatility and great uncertainty. And that goes away later in life. You become much better at balancing emotions, at experiencing equanimity, meeting the world with a sense of perspective.
0: Let's talk about the happiness curve and its purpose because it's social and it bends toward this thing called wisdom. Again, those ancient philosophers like Aristotle, they were onto something. Talk about Paul. His story was remarkable and universal.
5: Paul is a guy who I met when I was on a speaking trip and he was I was driving around with him. And his story turned out to be a midlife crisis story. It does happen. He was a super motivated high achiever ice climber who wanted to do all the hardest routes in the world and broke both his legs trying to do it and would obsess if he wasn't, you know, out there on the ice every winter. Had marriage kids and he just fell apart in his forties. When he put himself back together, a big element is that he went out to an Indian reservation to do some teaching and saw the poverty and need out there and began to throw himself into that. And that changed his life. Well, from his perspective, he feels like the reservation did this to him. Really, I think the science is more like he did this to him. His brain was not receptive to doing that kind of close, social, connected work when he was younger because he was focused on personal ambition. That's how we're wired. But he became, as he aged through this crisis and beyond, he became more oriented toward helping other people and found a deeper level of satisfaction than he ever known before. And one of the things he said to me along the way was that he thought he had a better toolkit for life, which I thought was a great phrase. So I put that in my pocket and was looking at the literature on what's going on behind the happiness curve. Why would evolution want us to have this additional satisfaction later in life? And the word wisdom kept popping up. It turns out there's a science of wisdom. Wisdom is not like some folklore concept from fairy tales. It's a real thing. It's measurable. There are tests for it. There are people looking for it in brain scans. It's not the same as knowledge, expertise, skill, experience, and certainly not the same as intelligence. It has almost zero relationship to how intelligent you are, how wise you are. But wisdom is just what Paul said. It's about having that toolkit for life. So it's, wisdom is rare at any age, young or old, but we're better equipped for wisdom as we get older because wisdom is about the ability to balance competing emotions to synthesize a lot of experience, not to fly off the handle too much, and it's especially about helping navigate complex social situations. We think that's why it exists. Tribes that have wise people tend to do better, and families that have wise people, because wise people help offer good advice about how to cope with stuff.
0: And lastly, Jonathan, talk about faith and religious community. Many of the happiest and most satisfied among us are also people of deep faith. Does that have any relationship to the happiness curve?
5: Faith, I think, is something largely separate. Um, The happiness curve is about the effect of time, but it's important for people to remember, lots of other things affect your well-being in life. You know, for example, your health and the satisfaction you get from your job and the quality of your marriage. And yes, faith is an important element of that. So, on any given day, Lee's or Jonathan's life satisfaction depends on a host of variables, and no one should think that time, the happiness curve, is the only thing going on. It's one of a lot of things going on. So by all means, faith can increase well-being, and there's a lot of documentary evidence to, to show that that's true. But it's it's kind of a separate thing. It's, it's a good thing. It's an important thing, and I ran across it when I was doing my research. But what we need to remember is it's not the only thing going on. Your age will also affect your happiness, and it will affect your receptivity to faith and to community and stuff like the amount of and quality of volunteering that you're doing, for example, which is important in many faith communities.
0: Indeed. And, and I'm going to end with a, a line that I think almost summarizes the book. It's just such a beautiful one. Time and aging fight happiness in midlife, then switch sides. Talk about that.
5: That's it. It's what I, it's what I just said. You know, it's time and aging are not the only thing going on. It's like you can walk uphill and it's harder or downhill and it's easier, but where you go depends on what direction you set and the terrain and, you know, but and the distance and the weather. Lots of things go on. But it's very important to know that there is this u shaped to life and that if you're someone who is feeling that, you know, your, your midlife is a grind of disappointment and it seems like it's, it's never going to end and you don't know what to do, for a lot of people, in a lot of cases, what to do is nothing. It's not literally nothing. Reach out to other people. It's, it's better not to bottle this up avoid big mistakes and impulsive decisions of the time we talked about earlier counseling is often a good idea these days there's counselors know all about this and they're not going to tell you you're depressed you need medication off to the the funny farm so and coaching is a really good thing to do because coaching is about realigning our lives to meet our changing values and that's especially important in middle age because that's what's really going on so all of those things can help, but the most important thing is to understand that what's happening to you is natural, normal, healthy, nothing to be ashamed of, and it goes away. It gets better.
0: And we're speaking with Jonathan Rauch's book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And Jonathan, thanks for joining us.
5: It was great to be here. Thank you.
0: And go to Amazon.com and get The Happiness Curve. It's as good a book as I've read in a very long time. This is Lee Habib, Jonathan Rauch's story, the story of human happiness, here on Our American Stories.